after the bodhisattva or the Buddha-to-be practiced tranquility meditation and insight meditation to completion or successfully, he articulated his understanding in his first discourse to the five ascetics who had practiced with him. And he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. These are four understandings that he realized through practicing insight. And what we're doing here is practicing tranquility and insight that if practiced successfully will also result in our realization of these Four Noble Truths. And so to hear a talk on the Four Noble Truths can point to the direction that practice takes us. And as the teachings of the Buddha traveled from India, where he lived, to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tibet, China, Korea's Japan, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and now coming to the West, the teachings of the Dharma meet the local uh, prevailing religious or spiritual understanding of that location, and there's a melding of the or an integration of the, of, the, the, of the teachings. And so we get uh, Japanese Zen practice, Tibetan Tantra practice, and Theravada Jhana practice, all looking very different, but coming from the same teachings. And in all of those traditions, they all agree on and all rely on and their practice is based on the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And so we might call the Four Noble Truths the, the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings or the essential Dhamma of the teachings of the Buddha. So I want to speak about them tonight as a support for our practice here in the remaining days of the retreat. Now, it's interesting that the Buddha called them truths. Implied in that is that this is the way it is, whether there's a Buddha in the world to talk about it or not. But it takes the uniqueness of a Buddha to look at, to observe the way things are, and to discover the truth of that, that when integrated or when taken into our life, holds open the possibility of liberation. Four Noble Truths, <clears throat> the first of which is the truth of dukkha, or dukkha satcha, 
Now, when I first started practicing Dharma 35 years ago, Dukkha Satcha was translated as life is suffering. But I was 25, full of it, a lot of energy, whole life ahead of me, and uh, my life wasn't suffering. I accidentally went on a two-week retreat. I thought I was going on some sort of holiday. Ended up at a two-week retreat and sat in the back of the room leaning against the piano for two weeks wondering, what the heck am I doing here? Prior to that time, had no interest in spiritual practice, Buddhism, meditation, or anything like it. Nevertheless, I was struggling. My body was killing me. My mind was doing the same. But life is suffering. I couldn't open to it. Somehow I thought that my experience there was just some personal limitation that would soon be over with if I could just kind of figure out which cushion to sit on. When I got to Burma 10 years later, after having practiced um, with many of the Western Dharma teachers, one of Saito Bandita's translators talked about the first noble truth as the oppressive nature of experience. And finally, I could get it. I could begin to understand, oh, yeah, some conditions are pretty oppressive. And I began then to open to a fuller understanding of what the First Noble Truth is pointing to. But what I learned from that experience is that it is really difficult to see and to confirm what the Buddha was pointing to, what the Buddha was talking about in the First Noble Truth of Dukkha. My conditioning, my denial, my avoidance, my Western whatever it is, just didn't allow me to open to Dukkha as I was understanding it because in my mind I thought if life is suffering or if somehow I am suffering, then I'm a failure. I personally am not doing it right, doing life right, and so there's something wrong with me. And I couldn't open to that. That just didn't, that didn't seem like a universal truth to me. <laughs> I personalized my suffering. And the Buddha was pointing to something much greater than one's personal suffering. So what does it mean, dukkha satcha, the truth of dukkha? Dukkha means pain, or one meaning of dukkha is pain, the truth of pain. Every one of you in the room today can confirm the truth of pain. We know what pain is. We've been sitting with it in the body and in the mind. And it's obvious. There is the pain of just the discomfort of sitting still in the body. 
even if the body is healthy and well-fed and, and not tired, it still is painful. This is the nature of the body. It's a truth. But there's other obvious physical pain, of course, when you get sick, as you age, if you jam your finger in the car door, when you have a toothache, a headache, a backache, fall down, break your wrist, or any other physical trauma to the body, it's painful. And we all have experienced this kind of pain and a lot of it. It's unavoidable. There's also the unavoidable mental pain or emotional pain, if you will. The pain of fear, loneliness, self-consciousness, shame, regret, disappointment, frustration, anger, jealousy, envy. Well, the list just goes on and on and on. And we all have experienced not just some of these, but all of these at different times in our life. There isn't anyone that avoids them. Again, this kind of pain, emotional pain, is so obvious and it's so apparent and it's so ubiquitous and it's so universal. It's called dukkha dukkha, just so you get it. But there's another meaning to the word dukkha that's important to begin to open to. Dukkha is not only immediate and obvious pain, dukkha also has another connotation. And it has to do with the fact that everything changes. Everything changes. And because things change, they are unreliable. Now what that means is the good conditions that we experience today, good health, reasonably stable finances, um, some discretionary time, uh, you know, uh, living in a society that's not at war at where we live, at war elsewhere, but not here. And th these are good conditions, but they're subject to change. We all know how quickly the conditions upon which our happiness rests can unravel pretty quickly. Whether it's you get your pink slip at work and you're out of job, or the stock market does its gyrations over the last couple of years, or you go to a doctor and you, for your annual exam and you get a diagnosis and a prognosis that puts everything into a different light. And we're all subject to this all the time. Now, most of our life is spent avoiding, denying, minimizing, and trying to build up all kinds of defenses against having to deal with any of those unpredictable catastrophes, if you will. And yet, no amount of stuff, no amount of cash in the bank, no amount of letters after your name, PhD, ABC, LMNOP, whatever, 
can hide this insecurity and this instability from you. We see it. It's just over the horizon of the way things are right now. It's just out of sight, and yet it exerts a tremendous influence on our life. So much of what we do and the decisions we make is out of fear of these, well, inevitable conditions. And so we live with this fear. We live motivated by fear. We live with this insecurity hovering on the periphery of our life all the time. It's not that the good conditions that we enjoy now are painful and therefore dukkha dukkha. It's not that. Pleasant conditions are pleasant. They are pleasant. But hidden within pleasant conditions is the inevitability of unpredictable and unknown change. And therefore, that is dukkha. The unpredictability of the changing of good conditions, pleasant conditions. Again, we often miss this teaching of the Buddha because so, it is so easy to personalize our own insecurity and think, I'm insecure because, well, you know, I don't have my retirement account built up, or I don't have a steady job yet, or I don't have a relationship that I'm really satisfied with, or I don't have car insurance, or I don't have health insurance, or it's just my not quite having gotten it together to be stable and secure yet -ness. We're all in that same condition. We all, no matter what we have, we still have the inevitability of change hovering over us. And no amount of stuff or things can inoculate or insulate us from knowing this. So that's the second meaning of dukkha. There's obvious pain, and then there's the insecurity from the unpredictability of changing conditions. But there's a third flavor or meaning of dukkha that also needs to be open to, to really understand what the Buddha was pointing to. And it's called Sankhara dukkha. And there are two perspectives of Sankhara dukkha. There's the macro view and the micro view. <coughs> the macro view of Sankhara dukkha is that we're born and our parents doing the best they can, or other caregivers doing the best they can, feed us, clothe us, bathe us, coo us, love us, teach us, train us, neglect us, and doing the best they can, try to move us along until they can hand us off and share the burden with somebody else, our peers, their parents, their, <laughs> our siblings, whatever until we finally get to public school when we've hired people to do the work 
for a few hours a day, and they train us and teach us and cajole us and kind of tame us a little bit and kind of move us along until finally in our teenage years they can finally get us to believe you're on your own, kid. Now it's our responsibility, and somehow we get it, more or less, usually less initially, but we start to get it that we have to take care of ourselves. We have, each one of us has to feed ourselves and bathe ourselves and clothe ourselves and educate ourselves and, and find our entertainment and, and our partners and, and find our way in life in order to kind of be happy. And as you enter, you know, early adult years, you, 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 you're kind of moving out of the house and you've got to take care of yourself and so you, you've got to eat. So you need to get food. In order to get food, you've got to have money. In order to get money, you've got to have a job. In order to have a job, you've got to go to school for 16 years. There's some dukkha. So you get your job, you get your money, you get your food, you take it home, you put it in the cupboard. A day or two later, you get it out, you open it up, you spread it around on the stove, you heat up, you dirty all these dishes, you sit down for five minutes, gobble it down, you move on after you've spent a half hour cleaning up the kitchen, taking out the garbage, and in order to feed this body for the next four hours. And you have to do this every day. And you've got to bathe the body every day too. And you've got to groom it, and you've got to dress it, and you've got to spend all that time, all that money, all that very refined attention in front of the mirror <laughs> to present yourself to the world as you want to be seen. And you have to do this. You can't get anybody else to do it for you. <laughs> and you have to keep moving the body because if you don't, you know, if you sit still very long, the body hurts. And we like a lot of variety in our life. And so you've got to keep searching it out, finding it, and consuming it. And just taking care of the body is a major occupation, not only of young adults, but of us too. That's just the body. We also have this mind. Now, you know what it's like to have a mind? You have to take care of it. Because if you don't take care of your mind, if you don't keep it entertained and distracted and satisfied, it's going to get angry, it's going to get frustrated, it's going to get dis disappointed, it's going to get depressed, it's going to get anxious, it's going to get fearful. And you've got to take care of it. You've got to live with it. So you've got to take care of your mind. And if you don't take care of your mind, if you don't do all of that seeking constant contact and stimulation, well, it's just like being on a retreat. <laughs> There's some dukkha. It's like, do nothing with your life. <laughs> Try that. If you think that's going to be so satisfying. And you have to do it. You've got to take care of the body. You've got to take care of the mind every day. For one, two, three, four, five, six, sometimes seven or eight decades. <laughs> At the end of which, what happened? The body gets put in its best set of clothes, <laughs> laid into a beautiful box, and it goes into a hole in the ground. The end. All that investment of all that time, all that money, all that interest, all that love and resources 
bad investment. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, it's a good thing we can laugh about it because it's true. Right? I mean, it's like, you, you have any other option? Now, if all we're doing, let's face it, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave comfortably, we are wasting our time. But if we take the opportunity to really understand what this whole process is all about, understand the obvious suffering involved in it, seek to relieve ourselves of suffering and it, to the extent that we can help others also, be somewhat relieved of suffering, then we make best use of this opportunity. But without taking that opportunity, it's a burdensome, it's just an obligation that we have to take care of. That's the macro view of Sankara Dukkha. The micro view of Sankara Dukkha is we have these six sense doors. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind as the sixth sense door in the Buddhist understanding. And these six sense doors are being constantly stimulated all the time. You can't turn off your ears. You can close your eyes and you still see visions. You, how do you get away from feeling sensations in the body and the mind? Has it stopped yet? It's incessant. And this, this we in here, the me in here, is just barraged by this constant stimulation all the time, even when you're sleeping. Hard to get any relief. This constant bombardment of sense contact is when you can really open to it and feel it, it is oppressive. What can you do about it? We got it. This is the package. This is what having a human life is all about. Having these sense doors constantly bombarded and making something pleasant out of it or, or something, learning something about it. It's hard to open to this truth of dukkha and Sankara dukkha in particular because, well, another option isn't immediately obvious. It just isn't clear what you can do about it. And yet, when you open to how much, well, unsatisfactoriness it is, I won't even say suffering. Some of it is suffering, but it's certainly unsatisfactory. When we open to how unsatisfactory it is, where do we turn for an alternative? And it's, 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 it's unthinkable. It's not possible to kind of conjure up in the mind to think about how you're going to escape this, so to speak. Some of us have elaborate ideas about, well, I'll get rich. Rich people have their dukkha. Poor people obviously have theirs. Men have their dukkha. Women, they certainly have theirs too. Young people, ah, the life of the young. 
they have their dukkha. And as we who are this age know, aging brings its own peculiar brand of dukkha. Those who live in communities, obvious dukkha. Those who live alone, they have their dukkha. Monks and nuns, ah, the renunciate life, full of dukkha. <laughs> and those who live in the family life, it's pretty obvious that's dukkha too. Royalty have their dukkha, paupers have theirs. Those who are famous have their dukkha, those who are obscure and denied and neglected also have their dukkha. All beings live with this condition. So dukkha has these three meanings, pain, the vulnerability of insecurity, and this oppressive constant stimulation. Now when I was growing up in New England, back in the 50s, my parents were of the generation where they taught me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, I grew up in a household with an alcoholic father. Do you think there was any dukkha in our house? Not if you'd been listening. None. Never mentioned. Yet when I went to the first retreat like this, and the teacher sitting up front like I am here saying, hey, you know, life's dukkha. You know, there's, there's, there's suffering in life. There's pain in life. There's... I'd never heard that before. Never, never heard that before. It took a long time to open to it. But now, having understood what I've heard and understood from my own experience, I have tremendous gratitude to the Buddha and the Dharma teachers that I had who brought dukkha out of the closet and said, take a look. Because when we look, we see. And when we see, we're moved to do something about it. But until you see it, we go on in happy oblivion to the true conditions of life. Practice, as we're doing here, is to investigate this first noble truth. It's to investigate life in order to discover this first noble truth. And it takes a pretty steady attention to investigate it because, as we know, the mind is full of fantasies of the future, remembering of the past, hopeful anticipations, all kinds of distractions from seeing the truth. And so you really have to look, you have to really steady your attention in order to see the obvious. However, if we investigate, when we see, we have to do something about it. Now the question I have for you is, through your practice over the last few days, do you suffer? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Do you have unbearable pain? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Do you have mental turmoil that just won't quit? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Did you ever ask yourself why? 
why it has to be this way. We do, in our own kind of circular thinking way, wish it was otherwise. When the Bodhisattva was practicing and asked himself the same question, he came to an understanding which he articulates in the Second Noble Truth. He says, this dukkha is caused by craving. And craving in this situation means yearning, wanting, attachment, uh, being identified with things. This kind of hanging on to something, someone, some idea is craving. It is the source of dukkha, the cause of dukkha. Now, let me run this by you. I've always had this assumption that if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. I mean, doesn't that make sense? If you could get what you want, you know, get the career you want, the relationship you want, the finances you want, the car you want, the house you want, live where you want. If you could get what you want, what more would you want? Then there's no reason not to be happy, right? Wrong. Well, we've all been wanting and pursuing and getting things we've wanted for a long time. And we've gotten a lot of it. Happy yet? Well, to not get what you want is clearly dukkha. But the Buddha said, to get what you want is also dukkha. Spin that out for me. How's that happen? Well, if you get what you want, if it's alive, it will surely get sick and die. If it is metal, it will rust or corrode. If it's digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's of any value at all, you have to insure it, and to insure it, you need to protect it. And if you don't, it may be taken from you or confiscated or taxed. Anything that we acquire that we get to hang on to, to support our happiness, is liable to change. And so, while we may experience a momentary relief, satisfaction, or happiness with acquiring and getting, the very thing that you've been wanting all day, whatever it is, the mind knows it's liable to change and cannot rest with the idea that, ah, now I'm secure. Now I have what I need in order to be permanently and enduringly happy. Not possible. Well, this true, this too is a very difficult truth to acknowledge. Very difficult to see this truth because it is so counterintuitive. To get what you want is no security. 
So some who see the tip of the iceberg understand that security and happiness really cannot lie in acquiring the material things of the world. And so they head for spiritual practice. And here we are in our practicing diligently to find the true source of happiness, which in a retreat like this comes down to wanting a pain-free sitting. <laughs> well, as one of our students has said so eloquently, there's nothing like a good sitting early in the day to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> Why? Because the next sitting, when you come looking for it, it's not there. And you can spend the rest of the retreat looking for, trying to make happen, trying to sit just right, get those cushions just right, in order to be, to find something that was a momentary set of conditions that's long gone that you're attached to. And the craving for that experience is a source of dukkha. We crave for pleasant experiences. That's why we have retreats on Maui guaranteed to fill up because people like the pleasant experience of Maui. There's no problem here having a full house. Nevertheless, pleasantness is not all that satisfying all the time. But we want pleasant physical sensations, we want pleasant food, we want pleasant sights, we want pleasant sounds, we want pleasant ideas, we want pleasant memories, we want pleasant plans. And we try, but somehow these unpleasant things keep sneaking in. You know, a little rain on a sunny day, <laughs> a little whatever, just keeps coming in and, well, we have to look further or look elsewhere or keep looking for more pleasant experience. But the Buddha had a really interesting insight. He said, not only do we crave pleasant experience, we crave continued existence. As if this wasn't good enough, we want some more of it. Well, now what does that mean? Let's cut to the chase. What does it mean to crave pleasant experience? Well, did you have planning mind today? You know planning mind? You know what planning mind is? Planning mind is imagining a better future. You know, and you say, you know, yeah, right, if I do this and this and this, then later, tomorrow, at the end of the retreat, next relationship, next job, next tomorrow, whatever, next whatever, it's going to be better. Did you ever make plans for anybody else? <laughs> it's always all about you. And did you ever make plans for a worse future? <laughs> no. We are planting seeds in the mind for happiness elsewhere all the time. And when we get there, we'll still be planting seeds for happiness elsewhere in the future. We've already gotten here. This is where we planned to be last week. <laughs> Happy yet? Okay, you see, looking for happiness in all the wrong places, this is samsara. This is what the Buddha said. We're always looking for happiness in all the wrong places. places and things and people and events that can't genuinely offer the happiness we seek. And yet, we still keep seeking. We still keep planning. We still keep reaching for, grasping, hoping, yearning, expecting, 
anticipating. And even when we get it, we're not satisfied. So the Buddha said, not only do we crave pleasant experience and continued existence, we have this uh, uh, dual capacity to crave the end of existence. You know that sitting you had this morning, this afternoon, where the body was just in screeching agony? Didn't you wish it was over with, that you weren't there? We wish it would all come to an end. We wish somehow, when life is that painful, that we could just escape it, just get out of it, just bring it all to an end. I mean, none of us are gonna do anything to really make that happen, but in our mind, we crave that. We want it to stop. We want it to end. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. And what we think or fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Early uh, early experiments or early research into happiness is this famous uh, uh, research where these experimenters uh, questioned lottery winners. And they determined a baseline happiness of the lottery winners before they won the lottery and one year after they won the lottery and there was no difference. They were as happy a year after winning the lottery as they were before they ever won the lottery. Maybe they paid off a few bills, but it didn't make them any happier. They also researched the baseline happiness of those who suffered a traumatic or catastrophic accident or disease. You know, becoming a paraplegic, quadriplegic, or other things like, of that order. And they found that the baseline happiness of those individuals one year after the accident was no different than the day before. What we think will make us happy, win the lottery, doesn't. What we fear will make us unhappy, also doesn't. We have no idea what will make us happy. And yet we pursue all kinds of things, believing, I should say, mistakenly believing that it'll make us happy. We really don't know what'll make us happy, and our happiness is independent of the conditions we live with. The second noble truth, as I said, the first noble truth is to be investigated. The second noble truth is to be abandoned. Craving is to be abandoned. Our practice here is to see when we're holding on, when we're yearning, when we're wanting, when we're looking for happiness elsewhere, and to let go. To let go in our mind, to let go in our, our yearning, our planning, whatever it is, to abandon it. What does sitting on our cushion here, walking in the rain to lunch, have to do with 
this. First noble truth, second noble truth. The Buddha, thankfully, didn't stop with just their suffering caused by craving, good luck. <laughs> he said, there's a third noble truth, luckily. There's an end to all this dukkha. There's an end to all this dukkha. And when we hear about the third noble truth, it's often talked about in terms of some far-reaching, almost incomprehensible goal of enlightenment or liberation or nibbana or something, whatever that is out there. And the Buddha did mention that in the Third Noble Truth. But that really isn't enough to sustain the human effort required to sit here with our suffering mind in our aching body. And so we need to have another understanding of the more immediate and tangible benefit of practice. How we can reach the end of dukkha even temporarily or momentarily. There are several ways that we see this in our practice here today. And the first is by paying attention moment to moment, we discover many times over the mind holding on. If we don't pay attention, we may never recognize that the mind is wandering. Right? Can you still hear me okay? No. Time out. As we pay attention, we notice when the mind is holding on to some memory, some plan, some fantasy, and through noticing that, we can intentionally let go. We just let go. And when we're able to let go of this obsessing mind, there is a momentary feeling of relief. Now, when I first started practicing my first retreat, I, when I went to university, I studied engineering, and that was back in the days before handheld calculators where everything was done with a slide rule and a lot of longhand mental mathematics. And I just did a lot, many years of advanced mathematics where it was all done in the head. And so that was my training. And when I got to Dharma practice, when my mind wandered, it wandered into complex mathematical calculations, multiplying out three and four digit numbers in my head, trying to hold it all there, coming up with the answer. And I would, my mind would wander, and I'd find myself trying to figure out this mathematical formula, and I would say, do I need to be doing this right now? And by merely seeing it, I could intentionally let go relief. 
But if I hadn't been practicing awareness training, mindfulness, I wouldn't see it. We do this a lot. Every time you discover the wandering mind and you let go, it's letting go of, it's letting go of craving and there's a moment of relief. We could call it a, a, a dukkha-free moment. There's a second way that we experience the momentary or temporary end of dukkha. When the obsessing of the mind, the desire, the aversion, the frustration, the disappointment, the doubt, the sleepiness, the restlessness, when those hindrances are finally and temporarily, at least, put aside because the momentum of your mindfulness has, has gained some uh, momentum and you can keep the hindrances at bay momentarily, we, we, we get this experience called samadhi. It's seclusion of mind. It's where the mind is secluded from its mental torments, at least briefly. It is a relief after the days or re retreats of struggling with the hindrances to have this quiet, open, spaciousness of mind feels like this is it. What a relief. It is a kind of dukkha dukkha free zone. There's no obvious pain there. There's no thinking that would condition feeling insecure. And so there is a great sense of relief. To the extent that one develops samadhi and keeps developing even more samadhi, it can become very powerful. The mind that is concentrated has the capacity of holding everything as a single unit and the understanding that we are all one arises in the mind. We're all one. Everything that exists is all one. It's all part of the same thing. And you can see how it all fits together. This has, at the time of the Buddha, and even to this present day, been mistaken for enlightenment. Through additional concentration, the mind can become absorbed in very, very subtle states of mind. Infinite space, infinite consciousness. What are, what are they? I mean, hard to even imagine what they is, what they are. Or, or nothingness. Imagine your mind absorbed in nothingness. What could be better? I mean, what could be subtler? What could be more freeing? And yet, these two, then and now, mistaken for enlightenment. Why is it mistaken? <clears throat> because these states of mind are temporary. They do not last. These understandings come and go. They also don't last. Anything that is unstable like that cannot be liberation. Nevertheless, they are for a period of time, a dukkha dukkha free zone, and even a viparinama dukkha free zone, the changeability. Because it's a steady state, nothing's changing, no vulnerability, no insecurity. 
but in time it comes to an end. That's dukkha. There's a third way that we experience the ending of dukkha or the reduction of dukkha in our practice here and it has to do with what Kamala spoke about last night, the development of the seven factors of awakening. When the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors are highly developed and brought into balance, the mind becomes very equanimous. It is just not reactive to anything. No matter how pleasant or how unpleasant an experience is, the mind is totally at ease with it. Imagine, no matter what appears in the mind, no matter what appears in your environment, no emotional reactivity. It doesn't mean that you're cut off from it, doesn't mean that you're dead or absent, it just means that you see it for what it is and the mind is so chilled out. No dukkha dukkha, no insecurity. It's a relief, it's a huge relief. And it is said that this state of mind, this highly developed and mature equanimity of mind is like how fully enlightened beings live all the time. We can access it temporarily in our meditation. But because we're not yet enlightened, of course it, it degrades and we're back to normal. But enlightened beings, live in that place of non-reactivity all the time. We can get a taste of it, even momentarily. It's really exquisite. There's a fourth way that we experience the end of dukkha in insight practice. And that is when the mind is very balanced, very mature, and the equanimity is ongoing and pervasive. It is the place where the mind opens up to see deeply and understand, to realize the way things are. And what the mind sees in insight practice are three characteristics. The first characteristic is that everything changes. Now we know that in our heads, but we don't live that in our hearts. When the mind is in balance and we open to this understanding where we see the impermanence of all conditioned things moment to moment, at every moment they arise, the understanding is there. This is changing. And when you really understand the changeability of everything, the mind doesn't reach for anything. So the mind is not reaching, the mind is not yearning, the mind is not clinging, the mind is not craving, it's not attached, and it's not identified with anything that it knows is impermanent. And when the mind doesn't reach, and doesn't hold on, and doesn't get identified with anything that is arising, there is in that very moment an exquisite kind of freedom, relief. 
This insight can be the platform for the opening to the unconditioned. This is Nibbana. This is what the Buddha is pointing to in the Third Noble Truth. When this insight becomes very mature, the mind can fall into the non-grasping of unconditioned phenomena. Hard to put it into words, hard to understand it conceptually, but it is a reality that can be realized through practice. It is the Dukkha Free Zone that the Buddha is pointing to in the Third Noble Truth. But not only is it the insight into impermanence that opens this possibility, it's the insight into dukkha. Do you remember everything I told you that dukkha was about? Pain and vulnerability and insecurity and the oppressiveness of conditions. When the mind opens to this understanding and sees the dukkha characteristic of every phenomena, everything has this dukkha characteristic. It's either painful or it's changeable and therefore insecure, or it's oppressive. When the mind sees this in every moment and understands this and stops struggling and wishing it was otherwise, the mind doesn't reach for anything that it knows is dukkha. The mind doesn't reach. And when the mind doesn't reach, it then again can fall into the unconditioned. I would say, the kind of the ultimate dukkha-free zone, the unconditioned of Nibbana. The third understanding that comes with insight is when the mind is very balanced, very equanimous, it sees that what is arising in every moment is impersonal conditions. Things happen because other things happen. Stuff comes together and it appears. And because everything changes, it soon disappears. Whatever has appeared has no inherent existence in and of itself. It is just the result of conditions that are changing all the time. Well, this is, we can almost grok that. We can almost begin to see how that's happening. But when it's realized deeply and understood and accepted, moment to moment, there's no experience that arises in the mind that the mind sees as being worth reaching for, grasping, holding on to, yearning for, or getting attached to. And so everything goes by. The mind is willing to let everything go by. You don't disappear. You don't fade away. You don't become a blob. You don't, you don't become just kind of empty, aimless, wandering nobody. Well, maybe you do. But <laughs> you just stop reaching for, holding on to, and therefore suffering with conditions. And then again, the mind also can fall into the unconditioned from this understanding of this characteristic of how impersonal and conditioned everything is. When I say the mind falls into the unconditioned, I mean the mind gives up clinging. The mind gives up attachment. The mind lets go of all known 
experience. As I mentioned, Nibbana is a reality. It can be accessed. It's not only for monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for hermits that live in a cave for 20 or 30 years. How is it possible? The Buddha pointed the way in the Fourth Noble Truth. The Fourth Noble Truth is the path to realize the end of suffering, the end of dukkha, through the end of craving. What we're doing here is practicing three trainings. The training of sila, living according to the precepts, that purifies our speech and our behavior. And because it purifies our speech and behavior of all the defilements, we get the opportunity to experience the happiness of living in harmony with ourself in harmony within a community. Well, imagine if you lived in harmony with yourself, how much less dukkha there would be in your life. Or if you were able to live in harmony with all of your companions in life, how much less dukkha there would be. But even if we do live carefully, speak very carefully, act very carefully, so as not to harm any other living being, still our mind can drive us crazy. Because we can want to say everything we're not saying. We can want to do a lot of what we're not doing. And so our mind can be quite obsessed. And so another practice is needed in order to tame that level of suffering. And for this, the Buddha taught mindfulness. Mindfulness that we have been practicing here sees the obsessing mind. When it sees the obsessing mind and how much suffering it is, it lets go, eventually. It might take a while, but eventually we will let go because it's suffering. To the extent that the mind lets go of the obsessing defilements, the mind is purified of what torments it. So we say the purifying of the mind through the development of mindfulness and samadhi results in the happiness of seclusion, the mind that is unobsessed. Now imagine if your mind was not obsessed ever by anything. What a relief. As long as you're practicing steady mindfulness and developing samadhi, that's the experience. But hard to do, even in a retreat, may be more difficult at home and wait till you hit Main Street. So the Buddha said, samadhi alone is not enough. To really get to the root of suffering, to really get to the root of this craving, you have to practice insight. And so we offered the third training, which is insight, resulting in the purification of our understanding. It's not about attaining some experience. That's samadhi. It's about realizing the way things are. It's changing our understanding. It's purifying our understanding of wrong view through insight. 
And what is insight? I just talked about them. The insight into impermanence, the insight into dukkha, and the insight into the impersonal nature of phenomena. When we really see this and we uproot from our mind wrong belief, then it doesn't matter what situation we find ourselves in, whether we're alone or in a group, whether we're in a retreat or on Main Street or at work, in a hostile environment or of harmony or an environment that's harmonious, the mind does not resort to any defilement. It understands, oh, this is the way it is. Then the mind is free. Through the development of insight, the mind can be free. So it is this, these three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path that brings the mind to both temporary and permanent end of dukkha. What we're doing here is practicing sila, samadhi, and panya. We're developing the purity of speech and behavior. We're developing the momentary purity of mind. And through insight practice, we are gradually developing the purification of our understanding. All of your efforts today, as painful, as difficult, as challenging as it is, is all you can do to develop the fourfold, the, the eightfold noble path, the fourth noble truth. That's all you can do. This is the most effective way to address the truth of dukkha. Purify your speech and behavior, purify your mind, purify your understanding. These are the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. This is what he understood from having practiced successfully as we have been practicing today. This is the understanding that will come to you as you continue to practice. It comes in little bits and pieces and it matures and it grows and it becomes an irrefutable understanding and way of life. If you practice, it will happen. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.